All right. Guys, we have, we have two meetings left. We have today and uh, in two weeks, and we're all done. Um, so thank you for being faithful, and thank you for being here this morning, for dragging your sorry self out of bed to get here with all the rest of these. <laughs> Why am I looking at D-Rob? How did D-Rob get in here? <laughs> You're not working today. You don't have to work. You don't have to come to the school on Saturday. That's true. Yeah. All right. We um, are uh, on our last uh, section on build on the fifth discipline on, on the hermeneutic. Let, let me just briefly walk you through what's on the back of your notebook one more time. A brief one today. What are we all about with build? We're about trying to unify the men of the church around six key leadership disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And um, we are eager to be men who have these kind of as a center of gravity in our lives. The, the first, it always it begins here. It, it, you can't start anywhere else. You have to start with your own heart in that you shepherd your heart with the Word of God in order to know the God of the Word. Um, if you are a man who is feeding yourself with the words of God from Scripture, which reveal God, and you're not just going to those words to get theological facts or truths or to win an argument or to put together a Bible study, um, those are all things that you, you probably need. But if you're going to the Word of God first and foremost so that you might worship God and, and know God better and enjoy Him, and meditate on and and marvel in at his character and his being that is revealed there. You are you are setting yourself up to be used by God in a mighty way. The man who skips over that, plays leapfrog over that to get to other things, is is a man who's at you're a, you're a shell of a man. And and you and I feel this at times, don't don't you? I mean. I, I can feel that way when I when I haven't shepherded my heart well with the Word of God and I'm supposed to minister to you. What do I have to say? Um, you you need to be that kind of man. That's what you're striving for. Discipline two is all about your home, the first place of impact. That um, the, the first re, uh, not repercussion. The first place of, uh, of impact is just in your home. The people that you live with, roommates, your parents, your, your kids, your wife, those people are the ones who need to, to sense and feel most that you are a man of God and a, and a man of the Word and that the Word of God is, is everything to you. Those people need to, to feel that first. Um, we, especially young men, we come out of the womb eager to get out of our homes and neglect the people in our homes. And you see this by the time you're in junior high and high school, especially when you can start driving. Uh, you want to be out of your house as often as possible. And so even as kids, we begin to neglect our household relationships. And then it just continues on into college and all that kind of good stuff. Oh, but we promise it will be different when we find her, Right? Because then when you find her, you would never do that to her. At least until she has your ring on her finger and is now the mother of your children. And the next thing you know, you can think of a hundred reasons why you shouldn't go home quite yet. 
um, or be home, but not really be home, right? We know how to do that, right? With the remote in your hand. Um, so uh, focus on your household relationships. A man who is shepherding his heart, who's caring for his family and his household relationships well, is a man that, for the third discipline, you want to step into ministry in the church and beyond the church. Um, most of the problems that a church faces with a man that they give ministry to in the church comes because the man is not careful with his heart, with the word of God, and he has wrecked his household relationships, and then he blows up in ministry and takes a lot of other people down with him. So focus on your heart and then your home, and your ministry will find itself uh, being very full and consistent and dependable for other people. We then point you to discipline four, the, the... the qualifications, primarily the qualifications of deacon. We want to direct you to prayerfully pursue the qualifications for a deacon found in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, we want you men who are becoming godly men to lead ministries in this church in a, in a way that helps come alongside the elders of this church. Discipline 5 is on the hermeneutic then, which is what we're talking about now. We, we need to make sure that we interpret the Bible rightly and well, accurately, um, so that it unfolds everything that it must unfold about who God is and what his plans are in his son Jesus. Lastly, you are a man, Discipline 6, who's not at any church, but you're at Grace Bible Church. And so we want to focus you in on the vision and the gospel purpose, the biblical vision and the gospel purpose of Grace Bible Church. Um, we're going to do that one our next time together in two weeks. And just so you know, in two weeks we're not going to meet here. In two weeks we're going to meet in the music room, which is at the end, right down here by that door. So you can just come in that door that you probably all come in, and it'll be right on your right if you come in. And we're going to meet with all of the ladies uh, who are in Wellspring. So I think there's about 20 plus of them. And we'll all be in there, and we'll have food and drink like we normally do. But I'm going to teach both groups on... Um, the biblical vision and the gospel purpose. And we'll talk through that a lot more about what the church is all about at Grace. Okay? All right. So, this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the hermeneutic. Before we do that, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, we've got lots to cover. I'm going to start, and then we'll take a a, a good break in the middle, and then we'll finish up today, okay? So we can get through all of this. But let's pray. Let's ask God to to meet with us and to help us understand um, His Word better. And uh, hopefully this discussion on the hermeneutic this morning will do that for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is, a, it is a joy to be able to come into your presence this morning. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you for who he is um, to us and for us and who we are in him. God, I don't know how you did it, but I'm thankful you did that you put us in Jesus Christ crucified. You put us in Christ raised from the dead. And you put us in Christ who has ascended on high. We've been crucified with Christ. And we've been raised up with Him. And that is all so that the tyranny of sin would be completely undone. No longer because of your work in the gospel. No longer are we slaves to sin. Sin still harasses us. We are still tempted by it. But it is no longer our master. We can never go back 
to that unmixed condition of being a slave to sin. Um, where all we want and all we can hear and all we can obey ever is sin. We can never go back to that because of your powerful work in the gospel. And you united us with Christ raised from the dead and Christ even ascended on high. We've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places so that we might inevitably become slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. Slaves of obedience to Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this powerful gospel truth that the reality is now, instead of being a slave to lust, we are now a slave to love and holiness. Instead of being a slave to anger, we now are, according to the gospel and the power of it, we are slaves of joy and patience. And we find ourselves being tempted by anger. We find ourselves being tempted by lust and all kinds of sins. But we are not slaves of them. And so God, you call us even this morning to no longer present our members to sin, which will result in more unrighteousness. But you now, in the power of the gospel, command us to present our members to righteousness, to you to present ourselves to you so that we might be sanctified, so that we might progressively become holy. So Lord, we ask for you to help us to trust once again that this new creature you've made us into comes with all of the equipping you say it has to be obedient. And and we ask for your help to help us to trust that we are indeed who you say we are in Christ. And we ask for your strength to Be powerful in us so that we can say no to sin today and yes to obedience to Jesus. So God, we um, first, right off the bat, want to remind ourselves of what you have done for us in the gospel and who your son is for us in the gospel. And now, Lord, we turn our attention to how to interpret your Bible. And I pray, God, that you would use this that would be fruitful in the lives of these men personally but that it would also help secure this church and help it to be um, safe from false teaching that comes from an inaccurate handling of your word. I pray, Lord, that this would fortify this Bible church. I pray that these men would become well-equipped men with the word of God, able to shepherd others with the word, with the gospel. So, God, there's much that needs to be accomplished here, even far beyond what we could ask or think, and we are trusting that you will have your way with us and you will glorify your Son in this time. And we ask all of this in His precious name. Amen. All right, take out your handout. Here we go. And talk about the hermeneutic. What we did the last two times is we walked through um, Joel James, uh, my friend, uh, who wrote a little booklet for his the men of his church called How to Study the Bible. And we walked through that and we, we looked at some presuppositions uh, that, under, that, that lie underneath our view of Scripture. We then looked at um, two wrong ways to interpret Scripture, an allegorical method and a what-it-means-to-me method, which is more common for our day. Those are wrong ways to handle the Bible. And then we looked at 12 rules for interpretation in that handout from last time uh, that just kind of help walk you through a, a general 
basic way of interpreting the Bible. What we're going to do this morning is, is kind of key in on one key principle that um, we've kind of coined as left to right. Um, following the nature of progressive revelation. Progressive does not mean what progressives today mean. Okay? Progress, to be progressive today is to be liberal. Okay? What we mean here by progressive is that God revealed His Bible, His scriptures, one piece at a time. It didn't all come at once. It came in pieces. Moses wrote, and he wrote some more, and he wrote some more over about 40 years, and he wrote some more, and then Joshua started writing, and and whoever's writing, Job starts writing back in that time, and, and it comes in pieces. And you had to wait a long time for the next piece to come. You see, God had lots of patience as He was revealing Himself. And so He did it progressively. It came in stages. Uh, it's interesting that it is impossible for man to communicate all at once a movie, a story, facts from an event. You have to sit there and it starts with one word and it, be- it comes, becomes progressive. What I want to do is just draw attention to the obvious. We all know that this is the way it is. When you tell somebody, when you're, when you're asked, how was your day? You don't go, Bruh, and it's all out. It takes time. They have to wait for you to get all of the communication out. Right? Left to right. Following the nature of progressive revelation. What I want to do first in the first two points is talk about some relationships. Number one, the relationship between proper interpretation and our hearts. It needs to start here. I want you to think about this with me. Uh, Just reviewing the basics again, what we talked about with discipline one. God has revealed himself to us in creation and also in scripture. The place where he has revealed himself most clearly to us is in scripture, in written revelation. So he has revealed himself to us most clearly through his son Jesus in his word, right? And because of his saving grace in the gospel of his son, you have been transformed into a brand new creature in Christ. And guess what one of your chief desires is above all others? It is that you long to worshipfully see Jesus and know Him. Though you do not see Him, you love Him, Peter says in 1 Peter 1. This is true of you. This is what you want when God saves a sinner. He does not save them without also giving this desire to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to worship Jesus, to love Jesus. Can you grow cold in your heart towards that? Absolutely. And you will if you do nothing with your heart. You will. Because you're in this mixed condition and sin always pulls you away from Christ. But when He made you a new creature, the equipping and the new desires that come in with it are primarily love for Jesus. I want to see Jesus. What the Greeks said to Philip when they came, right before, I think it was in John 12, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Uh, my friend has that inscribed on his pulpit that he preaches from. That's what it's all about. We want to see Jesus. So, God has given to us by a saving grace this desire to worshipfully see His Son in 
the place where God has most clearly revealed him, which is your Bible, right? So we want to see him when we read it. We want to see him when we study it. Therefore, what does interpretation have to do with this? Everything. Interpretation is everything. We desire an interpretational method that allows God's word to speak for itself most clearly. Do you see how important this is? You want an interpretational method that's going to just let the words on the page speak for themselves. Okay? We desire an interpretational method that doesn't cloud the words on the page because then we wouldn't be able to see Jesus as well. We don't want an interpretational method that confuses the words on the page because then Jesus would be confusing to us. We don't want an interpretational method that distorts God's word because then Christ will be distorted. We don't want that. So if an interpretational method clouds the meaning, or, get this, if an interpretational method reassigns a new meaning, comes up with a new meaning for an old verse, we don't want it. Because God revealed himself through those pieces and those texts, and we must see him as he revealed himself. Interpretation, guys, hermeneutics, has everything to do with you being a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? I could jump up and down a little bit more if you want. But this is everything, guys. Hermeneutics drives everything. It is crucial for you to understand how to interpret the Word of God so that you can know Him. And you need an interpretational method that lets God's words speak for themselves most clearly. Okay. Number two. Your relationship between God's climactic revelation of His Son and proper interpretation. Now, let's talk about these two pieces that are related. God's revelation in this book comes to a climax in one name. Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth. That's what this book is about, right? Now, there's lots of things connected with him that are uh, attached to him uh, in regards to that, but the primary goal and focal point of this revelation is Jesus, Messiah. Now, what's the connection between him and proper interpretation of the Bible? Number two. Well, the one author of the one book that he wrote has this one primary message to communicate in his book. It's Jesus. But now let me ask you this question. How has God communicated that one message in this book? How did God communicate that one primary message of His Son in this book? And this is what we were just talking about. Um, You could take this Bible and you could break it down into two parts. You see the big Bible at the bottom of your sheet, right? On the right side, you got the New Testament. And on the left side, you got the Old Testament. You could take this Bible and you could break it down into parts. As few as two parts. Old Testament, New. You could break it all the way down into 66 pieces if you wanted. Right? With many different authors who utilize a whole bunch of different kinds of genre or writing styles. Now, let me ask you this question. I don't know if you want to write some of these questions down or not, but I want you to think about the pieces of your Bible and the one message. How much of that one primary message, which is Jesus, is in each one of those pieces? 
how much of that one primary message that God is trying to communicate is in each one of those pieces? You need to have a, a, a well thought out answer for that. Hopefully today we'll get you at least started thinking in a direction that maybe you can spend the rest of your life thinking about this. Uh, let me state the question a different way. How much does each text or each piece of the Bible need to be weighted with that one message? Okay. How much does each text of the Bible need to be weighted with that one message, Jesus, so that the obvious one message of the Bible is Jesus? Then the question comes from those two, this question. Which way of interpreting the Bible has the most integrity when analyzing each piece from the Old Testament through to the New Testament? You you want an interpretational method that's going to get this right. The individual pieces and connected to the one message. Which one has Christ... Is there an interpretational message that um, says, well, the only way that a text... Uh, for the whole message of the Bible to be Jesus, to come out, is if every single piece actually reveals Jesus Christ. In other words, when I'm in Joshua, Jesus is there. In that text. Or, is there another way of interpreting the Bible and all of its pieces that has integrity, which properly accents that one message of the Bible Jesus but doesn't do it that way see it's it's not so much how you get to it's not so much that you get to Jesus it's how you get to Jesus that is everything in your Bible and now what I just introduced to you it might be something that you have no idea about but out there in the realm of of Christendom and out there in the realm of where theologians live and, and talk and debate one another is this very thing that when you read the Old Testament you need to get to Jesus. And there's lots of different ways of how you do that. And not all of them are right. And not all of them are good. Only one way, in my opinion, can be right. And can be good. And so we're going to try to talk about that with you. So your, your diagram down at the bottom it just tries to give you a visual of, look, when you're in the law, it is true. When you're in Mosaic Law, you need to somehow at some point be thinking this Jesus Christ is the one message as Moses is writing to Israel when you're in the prophets you need to be thinking at some point Jesus Christ is the one message that Jeremiah and as he's writing to Israel somehow Jesus is the is the main deal same thing in the New Testament the New Testament is easy to us right the New Testament's all about Jesus But how do you relate those pieces, okay? Alright, number three. Next page. Let me introduce to you left to right. Left to right, the way the Bible was written. Following progressive revelation. Now you've got two arrows there. As you um, strive to interpret the Bible, guys, with integrity, you need to labor to hold on to tensions that are going to always be pulling you in um, different directions. So here's the first tension, the first arrow. You need to write this down. There is one message, or is it already written down for you? No, okay, here it is. There is one message from the Bible that I must not miss. Okay? 
That's the first tension. There is one message from the Bible that I must not miss. And again, what is that one message? It's Jesus Christ. When you are interpreting your Bible, you don't want to interpret it without thinking of Jesus. Gaining somehow from it what you think about Jesus. That's a tension you need to feel. What's the second tension? The second arrow? God unfolded the glorious one message in a progressive manner. He unfolded that in a progressive manner. He unfolded that one message left to right. Bit by bit. God did not reveal the totality of His Son Jesus with all of His Son's (coughs) splendor in Genesis 1. He just didn't. And He didn't even do it in Genesis 2. And not even all in Genesis 3. And so forth, right? So that requires of you the interpreter interpretational patience thanks for getting out of bed Josh it's good to see you what (laughs) slacker Um, think about this guys Um, God's full revelation of his son when God did that it God had an amazing what I call revelational patience Are you listening to this? Think carefully. As God revealed His Son, He had a lot of revelational patience. It was His plan. God who loves His Son more than anybody. God who wants to glorify His Son more than anybody. Ever. God who only has glorified His Son from eternity past. Decided, I'm going to take how many years to write this to get the fullness of the message of my Son out? What patience that this God who reveals himself in Scripture had. He took lots of time. He did it through 66 books. He did it through a ton of authors. He did it over a vast amount of period of time. He did it through two testaments. He took his time in revealing his Son. Guess what? If God had revelational patience, you need to have, and I need to have, interpretational patience. Do you understand? So if he didn't reveal everything in Genesis about Jesus, then don't interpret it in such a way that Jesus comes out everywhere in Genesis. Because he didn't get fully revealed there yet. You've got to feel this tension of like, every time you mention the one thing, there's one message in Jesus, in the, from the Bible, it's Jesus. You're going to feel like you need to run over to the other point and say, hey, but it comes in over time. And then you stress that, that it comes over time, you're like, yeah, but we've got to get to Jesus. And so you're constantly being t- pulled back and forth on this. Do you understand? There's this tension, left to right. Let me give you an example. Uh, it, it's possible to lack interpretational patience by knowing you need to get to Jesus. So I'm going to take Jesus from the New Testament and I'm going to push him back into the New Testament or into the Old Testament where he has not yet fully been revealed. Now, when a person does that, most of the people that I, like I've read that do that, uh, that I've even talked to who do that, I think they truly desire to get to the one true message of the Bible. I think they really do. That they see something very important. It's Jesus Christ. I've got to get to Jesus. But I just think they're going about it in something of an impatient manner, if you will. Okay? That interpreter is rightly concerned about the climax of Revelation, which is Jesus. 
there needs to be a little bit more patience. Backing Jesus into the left side of your Bible, um, from right to left, is, is something to beware of. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Did you know that God tells us himself that he didn't reveal everything about his son at the beginning? Hebrews 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. What does that mean? That God spoke most clearly later. If you take away anything just basic, it's that. God did not speak first in His Son, but He spoke through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. That doesn't mean that what the prophets wrote about had nothing to do with Jesus. But it also doesn't mean that Jesus is fully revealed at the beginning. You have to wait and hold on and be patient. Okay, So how should we avoid making this error in interpretation of, of wanting to be impatient and push Jesus back? Let me give you some left-to-right principles. You see them there? I think you've got, what, six of them? Um, here we go. Number one. Begin with the meaning of individual texts in order to move toward the message of the whole Bible. I'll say what's obvious again. No author ever tells his story all at once. No author can tell the whole story at once. He can't. You can't. It takes time to reveal the plot. It takes time to make the point that the author wants to make to us. Um, So, as an interpreter who reads books out there, you don't open it to page one expecting for it all to be there, do you? When was the last time you did that? Oh, you might have been eager, and you might, you're skimming, and you're trying to read as fast as you can because you want to get to the, the, the point, you want to get to the climax, but you don't ever expect to come to any book that you read outside of the Bible and expect to have it all right there spelled out for you. And I say is, let's just give this book the same courtesy. Let's come to it and let it unfold itself in time from left to right. Okay? Um, start with page one. Start with chapter 1. Start with individual texts. Start with pieces. And guess what? The one message won't come apart from you understanding what each piece says. They're connected. You have to see how that individual text is related to the climactic message of the Bible. Um, I I won't go to draw it as well, but... Here's that. Here's that picture, right? But your Bible, <clears throat> and you've got pieces of text all throughout the Old Testament and the New. <clears throat> Let's say we're going to isolate um, this text. And we're, we're, we're just trying to find out what it means. Okay? Interpret, we're interpreting it. Remember the, the key words? You don't want to get sloppy with the word mean or applies. Keep those two separate. It means something, and then we apply it, right? I'm just talking about what it means, okay? Um, if the whole message of the Bible is Christ Jesus, 
Okay? That spans what this book is about. The only way I get to that main theme is by doing careful interpretation of every single one of these. What does it mean? Um, what it means, what it means, what it means. Okay? I'm not going to come up with this apart from doing what the careful interpretation on every single passage, right? You have to work with an individual text and then move towards the whole message. That's the way you approach every other piece of literature. A news article, a magazine article, a fiction account, uh, a movie plot, whatever it is, you have to read pieces, you have to read paragraphs, and then you're going, oh my goodness, I see where this is going, right? Just, I want to just draw attention to the obvious because it's that obvious when it comes to your Bible. It is. Secondly, let the order or progression of Revelation guide you. <coughs> let the order or the progression of Revelation guide you. Read, interpret text in a forward fashion. Be mindful of the progressive nature of Revelation. Move left to right. Okay? Now, in your personal life as you study, and even me as a, as a preacher, I, I didn't start off my preaching career going, you know, I'm going to preach in Genesis 1, and then I'm going to preach um, Exodus, and then I'm going to preach Leviticus. I didn't start that way. The very first book I preached after being out of seminary was Colossians. I wanted to preach Colossians because it was all about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to teach high school kids and junior high kids that. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't study other passages first, but it means that when you're going to try to understand the Bible, you're going to want to look left to right. For instance, let's say you're reading here in Luke, and you come across this word, priest. Oh my goodness. What, is, what does that mean? What does priest mean? My only experience... At 19, when I got saved and I saw that word priest, guess what category? The only category I had was the Catholic Church. Should I import that idea of priest into Luke 1? That's what Zechariah was? The father of John the Baptist? What's the way to get to the bottom of that? I'll tell you the way to get to the bottom. It is exactly what we're talking about. You come back over here as far as you can. Where's the first time it's even mentioned? You're going to find way back here in Genesis that there's this guy named Melchizedek. He was a priest to the Most High God. Abraham came to him. Wow. And then you're going to go into Exodus and you're going to find that he's going to do something with the Levites. And they're all priests of God. And then there's this thing called a tabernacle that is made, and there's blood everywhere. And they're the ones shedding the blood of these. My goodness, and you just keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going. And then you get here. And then you get to like a book in Hebrews. Oh my goodness. And you're like, holy cow, I see it. Do you see that? And how does that topic priest inform you about the whole message of the Bible it says everything about it and look we're going to walk through this at the end you didn't have to put Jesus right there to get to the one idea do you understand what I'm saying so did this one point here help you understand the one message Jesus yes 
didn't do it by naming him right there? No. Got it? Alex. So how does this speak to how we should just read the Bible? Like when we're on a reading plan. Like that to me seems like chronological would be the way to read it, yeah. right? But yeah. that's not really the case. Yeah. Not necessarily. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't rigidly say that the only way you can read the Bible is chronologically. But what what I would say is, why wouldn't you want to do that periodically, frequently, every other year, um, every fourth year? I mean, twice a year. I, think about it. Start and, and and go through it that way. Don't just. I mean, you guys, can you see the danger of what you miss when you read? That one, that one, that one, that one. Those are your four favorite New Testament books. Those are the ones you go back to. And of course, once in a while, you get on this little kick where you're going to read Proverbs once a month. And and all you do is you just cycle through those same books. Right? That's all you do? Look, praise God you're in the Word of God. But you are you are crippling yourself in terms of understanding what this book is revealing. If you've learned anything in Bill this year, it is the rest of your life you read the Bible. Devotionally. Worshipfully. To enjoy Jesus. Mark? It seems like um, the ability to separate meaning and application, if you can't do that, you won't be able to do this. Because you'll constantly be looking for application in every one of those steps. You give up because you're what does that have to do with where I'm at today? Yeah, good point, great point. Yeah, uh, if your whole point in coming to the Bible is I need, a, I'm, I, I need an instruction manual for living, and today I'm going to be dealing with a boss who's a jerk, Melchizedek. Um, that didn't apply. Really? Well, it doesn't, but it does. Right? You need to have your eyes opened to see the Bible in a whole new way. Right? The bigger Jesus Christ is to you, the smaller your boss is. The bigger Jesus Christ is to you, the smaller your sin is. The smaller your problems are. You need a very big view of Jesus from the Bible. Okay? Number three. Be mindful of where individual texts sit in that progressive revelation. Am I in the Old Testament or am I in the New Testament? That's an important question to ask yourself, remind yourself of. Am I in the law or am I in the prophets? Am I in history? Am I in wisdom? Am I in the Gospels? Am I in Acts? Am I in the Epistles? This will, we'll have to unfold this at another point at another time. Uh, but that makes a huge impact on your application. Write the word application under number three. Because that's important for application. When you're going to go to apply and you're over here in Mosaic Law, you need to be really thoughtful about where I am. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But um, be mindful of where your text sits. Number four. Here's one the one that probably uh, causes the most tension maybe in us. Properly isolate your individual text in such a way that it allows you to temporarily hear its specific meaning more clearly than the meaning of any other passage or the climactic message of the Bible. Here's what I mean. When you are studying this piece right here, temporarily, in a proper way, I'm not a heretic. Don't listen to even this for a minute. 
just for a minute. And don't listen to this passage. Don't listen to this one. Don't listen to this one. Listen to this one. God revealed that one. And there were how many years that went on before any of these other ones were even written? If he was patient to not even let another one come out for a long time, you be patient to not even let another one come in. You just listen to this one. Let this one speak. Let this one speak. It won't hurt you. It won't deny this message. It reveals it, right? Jacob. So I was going to say, that's one of the strengths of not reading only chronologically, but rather reading book by book. Chronological can sometimes yank books apart when we try to... Yeah. Chronological reading plan will put... It'll chop books up. It'll, put, it'll help you understand yeah. the history of the Bible. Which Great. is helpful. Yeah. It'll help you maybe admit, or it may obscure where that passage sits within the book. So labor hard to understand yeah. the book of the Bible so you can understand that piece within the context of the book. So, right. Like inserting psalms in places right. in the middle it'll of help the book. Yeah. the psalm, but it could chop up the continuity of right. the kings. Yeah, my own personal preference it would be if I was reading chronologically, I would actually read a whole book rather than inserting Job into where they put Genesis 11, something like that. Rather than doing that, I would read just all of Genesis, and then I would read all of Job, or I would read all of Job and I'd read all of Genesis, depending on which way you you feel most comfortable with. Derek. in regards to splitting stuff up like you were just speaking about, that is in relationship to the book itself, not chapters, verses, etc. Correct? Uh, what, what do you mean? Um, so like you're saying, don't um, stop for a second and think about the future, or the further revelation that comes after it, yeah. uh, and then what took place before it. That is just in relationship to the context of the book for like chapter. Yeah. Okay. Yes, to both. What's interesting, um, great example in Romans 2, you need to have even interpretational patience from Romans 2 to Romans 3. Because Paul says, uh, what does he say there, that uh, the one who is righteous, he, he gets he gets to right. If you live righteously, uh, you get the, God God rewards you. Or what, is, what does it say? I need to just look. It's terrible. Let's go to Romans 2 for just a second. <coughs> a, you need to have patience and let one passage speak before you even let another one speak. Um, Romans 2 uh, let's start with uh, verse verse 6 God who will render to each person according to his deeds to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But there will be glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there's no partiality with God. That sounds like works righteousness. And you can like go, oh no, he doesn't mean that. Do you know why I know he doesn't mean that? Because in all the other places that Paul talks about, he's working against that. So that can't mean that. Well, just let it stand. Paul's like creating tension. Paul, what are you saying? Don't worry. I'm, I've got an idea. I'm Chapter 3, um, as it is written, verse 10, there is none righteous. So, yeah, I know I said that. 
uh, it can't happen. So don't change what he's trying to say to let it stand and, and let it let it condemn you. Well then God, you'd have to condemn everybody. Yes, I would. Um, so you even need to be patient within a chapter, within a, a book itself. And remember, there weren't chapters that were spelled out by the writer. Um, what you need to do in number four is you need to trust the author of the Bible who put the pieces together. Okay? If God was content to reveal that one piece of revelation for centuries before letting an, another piece of revelation come to build on that prior piece, then, then guys, you can be content in your interpretation to postpone the influence of another meaning that comes later. You can. You can. It won't hurt you. It didn't hurt God. Did it? It won't hurt you to do this. Letting one piece speak for itself in its own setting will not do violence to the one message of the Bible that God wants to communicate. Momentarily suspend the meanings. Now, positively, letter A. Let's, let's say this positively. The passage that has the most authority concerning its meaning is the immediate passage you're interpreting. The passage right here, this one, that has the most authority in terms of determining what it means is this one. Okay? Let's say it negatively. Another passage outside of this one doesn't have more authority on what this one means than this one. This passage here does not speak with greater authority on this one on what it means. This one speaks with its most authority on what it means. And guess what? You can trust God that this passage right here does not what? With this one. Doesn't contradict. But this one speaks with its most authority for itself. Okay? Um, be very careful, letter C, to not override the specific meaning of an Old Testament text with the later message of the New Testament or the meaning of a New Testament text. Okay? You can't take something that's revealed here in all of its fullness in Jesus and push it all back here because you see the word priest here and you see the word priest here. So that means everything that's true about this priest is this priest here. You can't do that. Now, that's the typical way that most of us, in fact, you've probably done this. You may not even know you've done it. That you'll take realities that are true here on the right side of your Bible and you'll read them back into this one. Let me give you an example of how you do that from left to right. How you sometimes inappropriately take ideas that are here and you push them here. You want to you know how you do that? You want to know how I do it? By taking every one of Paul's usage of the word law and inserting into its meaning, well, it's obviously Mosaic law he's talking about. Did it ever occur to you that Paul might have another meaning for law than just Mosaic law? Like the general law of God in general. He just has, he is the God of all regulation. Or that he might even be talking about law principle. If you live under a law principle hoping that it will sanctify you, can you use Mosaic Law to do that? Yes, you can use Mosaic Law. You can use pre-Mosaic Law to do that. You can use post-Mosaic Law. You can use the law of Christ to want to sanctify yourself by law. So you have to be careful to not take even an Old Testament idea and automatically read it into everything in the New Testament. So it can happen in either direction. Do you understand that? <coughs> 
Here's the way that I think we most, uh, probably most frequently violate this. When somebody comes to you with a question in this passage right here, I don't understand this. Once, watch yourself. One of the first things you'll do sometimes is you'll take your Bible and you'll go, oh, let, let me show you what that means. Look at this passage. Now, what's good about that? What's good about that? By trying to explain something here by what you see over here. What's good about that? Come on, what's good about that? You know your Bible. You know that the the, 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 the subject is carried is talked about in another place. Good. What else? You're comparing scripture to scripture. You're letting scripture interpret itself. That's good. You moved left to right. Good. Good observation. Scripture agrees with scripture. You could be showing, look, and it agrees with itself over here. Now, what's wrong with that? What might you communicate by doing that that you don't want to communicate? That this passage right here has more authority on what this means than what? That passage does for itself. This passage isn't clear enough on its own. Now there are sometimes there are some passages that are difficult to understand and you need to look and you need the help of another passage. But don't do that first. Stay in your passage. Don't turn the page. You're going to find yourself going, oh yeah, I know Paul said something about that someplace else. And, and you start to turn. Don't do that. Stay right there. Back up and read more in that chapter. Read a little bit beyond that. Just stay there a little bit longer. Number five. Do not improperly improperly isolate your individual text so that you never consider that a later testament has come or that later texts have come. Guys, if there's one danger in this and wanting to let this one passage right here speak for itself is that you will never let any of these other passages speak after it. Okay? God's revelation didn't end right there, did it? It kept going. So if you're studying something and you're seeing it there, you need to make sure that you keep pressing forward. And this is where I would say in a sermon or in a Bible study, if you're teaching, let's say you're going through Deuteronomy. I was talking with a, a, a pastor this week who um, at one point was preaching through Deuteronomy to the church. And he got to the section on uh, on how, to, how Israel was supposed to make sure they went outside the camp to use the bathroom. How do you apply that to the church? You can't just stay there and teach that passage and say, and thus now we understand Deuteronomy 24 better. You have to get, because you're speaking not to Israel, you're speaking to the church. You've got to get to further revelation. Okay? So you need to not improperly isolate your individual text. Okay? Um... Don't even, uh, here's, here's what's, when, when you're back here, don't forget that Christ comes here. Don't forget that Christ also comes here. Don't forget that there's even an eternal state that comes after he comes in his kingdom. So as you're reading Old Testament texts, don't forget that there's two comings of Christ. You've got to make sure that you get to the front. Now, how has the climax been reached? What climaxes have been reached here? What revelational climaxes have been reached here? 
gospel and we know who Messiah is. Right? Messiah and all of the gospel implications have been reached there. Is there anything to improve upon in regards to gospel truth here at his second coming? Does he need to, does he need to be sacrificed again? Do, no. In, in regards to the gospel, in regards to how a soul is saved, it is complete. There is nothing to improve upon in the message to the right. Now, what needs greater expression yet? How Messiah rules. There are still promises that stand from the Old Testament looking for that. There's even promises in the New Testament looking there that Messiah must reign in a kingdom in a way that in which he doesn't yet. So you've got to keep two tensions in mind as you interpret we have reached a climax in some ways that there's nothing better to come. And there is, living here in this world between the first coming of Christ and the second, there are some things that need to get better yet. So as you read your Old Testament, you've got to think about that. Is this pointing to something which has already come to its fullest fullness in Jesus? Or is it something that might be speaking, and you especially deal with this in the prophets, is, is he speaking about something in re- regards to Messiah that still needs yet to come? Hasn't reached its fullness. Lastly, number six, as you are dealing with an individual text, you always strive to summarize, develop, and refine that one message of the whole Bible. How has the meaning of your individual text helped you shape your understanding of the one climactic message of the Bible, which is Jesus, right? So you want to read and you want to reread your Bible. You want to work your way through key texts and key themes in the Bible. We're going to do this at the end today. And the same could be said of your theological system. Look, here's the one message of the Bible. It's Jesus. Do you know what else we talked about this? Do you know what else you do when you read? Whenever you read the Bible, every single one of you is a theologian. Every single one of you is a theologian, whether you know it or not. As you read your Bible, you are forming a theology. Your theology. You're, you're deriving, you're conclude, making theological conclusions from what you read. So, as you study this one passage right here, what bearing does this not only have on Jesus Christ, but what bearing does it have on the theology that you're forming? That means every single time you come to the text, you come with your theology. It's all stuck in your head. Some of it's really good. There are pieces of it that are really bad. And you come, and when you open up the Bible, you take your theology and you set it on the table right next to your Bible, and you let it sit right there, and you say, this passage I'm in, in Romans 2, how does its own particular meaning impact that? My theology. If you come and you say, I have my theological system, it is done. Like Jesus said it is finished, my theological system says it is finished. It's this catechism. It cannot be altered for centuries. It hasn't been altered. We can do Bible studies on it. But I have this. And then you set that down and it never changes and you come to a passage. Can it speak to that? Or does now this have to flex? Does your Bible have to flex 
to sustain your theology. So you need to be really careful. Really careful. All right, any questions on those six left to right principles? Let's go through number four and then we'll take a break, okay? All right, is there new subject? Is there continuity or discontinuity in progressive revelation? You say, I don't even know what that is. What are you talking about? Continuousness, discontinuousness. Careful interpretations of both the Old Testament and the New Testament will actually lead you guys into another tension that's going to pull on you from two different directions. Hey, Eric, would you do me a favor? Would you click it down to about 74 or whatever it is? Get it, get it way down there. I'm going to freeze these guys out. Um, there, let, let me put it this way. There are some things that from this very first page over here on the left, all the way through, there are some things that never change at all in the Bible. Never change. Give me one thing that never changes from left to right. Here. God is sovereign. God in all of his, his attributes, he never changes. Right? That would be an example of continuity in the Bible. The Bible's continuous. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, some things never change. Um, from about page two in the Bible, give me another thing that never changes. Man is sinful. Man is sinful. His sinfulness is true throughout, right? From left to right. Okay? But there are some things from left to right in the Bible that do change. Some things that happen here that never happen here. And some things happen here that never are supposed to happen here. There's some differences there. That's called what? Not continuity, but discontinuity, right? Some things change, some things never change. So how do you navigate through uh, your way through those continuity, discontinuity issues when you interpret the Bible? I want to give you a helpful principle that will um, guide you. Whatever is continuous in the Bible, whatever is continuous in Scripture, it emphasizes at its center Jesus Christ. Whatever is continuous in your Bible, it focuses on Jesus Christ. It comes to a climax in Jesus. In other words, if something never changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that subject or that theme will find its fullness finally in Jesus. Here's another theme that never changes from the Old Testament from about page 2 on. The sacrifice of an innocent substitute in the place of sinners. That never changes. Even into heaven, I saw a lamb standing as if, what? Slain. Even in heaven, there is a slain lamb. It's a theme that is true from left to right. But, if it is continuous in the Bible, it has reached its climax, not in a lamb, not in a goat, not in a bull, but in Jesus at the cross. So if something is continuous, it comes to its climax in Jesus. Now, there are implications for it beyond when he was actually crucified, but it comes to a climax in Jesus. That's for things that never change. That's true. Jesus is at the center. Guess what? Things that do change also come to a climax in Jesus. Whatever is discontinuous in Scripture, it comes to an end because of... Jesus! It comes to an end because of Jesus. Something greater has come. And therefore, 
We don't want the old anymore because something greater has come. So both continuity and discontinuity glorify Jesus Christ. That's a principle you want to hang on to. Things that change, things that never change actually glorify Jesus. If something needs to stop because Messiah must be magnified, then guys, let it stop. If something must never change because Messiah must be glorified, then never talk about it as if it's done. Alright, so what I want to do is I want to give you an example of the relationship between the writings of Moses and the Christian today. This is where most of the, the challenge rubbed, and this is where I spent the majority of my time in, in my doctoral work trying to think about the Christian and Mosaic Law because I had no good answer for this. I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, and I just, I was confused in how to handle Mosaic Law. The writings of Moses. How do you handle the writings of Moses? Um, has, as you read the writings of Moses, you need to be asking yourself, what has not changed at all from Moses to my day? What has not changed at all? And you need to be asking yourself the question, what has changed from Moses to my day? And you're going to find that what? Both things are true. There are some things in Moses that have not changed at all. And there are some things in Moses that have changed drastically. Okay? First, let's talk about this. What has not changed concerning the writing of Moses and the Christian today? Are you guys ready? We're going to do a whirlwind tour here through your Bible. Go to John chapter 5. John 5. Don't worry, I'll let you take a nap here in just a moment. We'll take a break. John 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures, Jesus says to the Jews, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? The law, Mosaic law, the Old Testament. These testify about me. Well, we we know that to be true, don't, don't we? The Bible testifies of Jesus Christ. We know that. Verse 40, And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another one comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses wrote about Jesus. Verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Go to Acts 28. Paul is in Rome finally after the shipwreck. He's imprisoned, but he has some freedom and he's speaking to the Jews. In Rome, they have not heard of anything from Jerusalem about Paul, but they have heard everywhere that this sect called um, that centers on Jesus of Nazareth, they've heard it spoken of against everywhere. Verse 23, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. Well, where did he try to persuade them from? From both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And he did it all day. 
So, you can go... Here's something that hasn't changed. Um, it's the message of what Moses is writing and what the message of the whole Bible is. It's Jesus. Moses writes about Jesus. Guys, if you want to understand Jesus better, what, where do you need to read? You need to read Moses. Now, how you're going to get Jesus from Moses is everything. right? And we've talked about that. You're going to have to be patient. We'll build on that, actually. Second point there. The gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in Moses' writings and law, according to Jesus and Paul. Go to Luke. Remember this? We, 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 we look at this passage a lot. Luke 24. The gospel of Jesus is actually rooted in Moses' writing. Here is how you see that Moses is all about Jesus. Verse uh, 25 of Luke 24. Jesus is walking with the two disciples after he has been raised from the dead. They don't recognize him and they're all bummed out. They can't explain what has happened over the last couple days. A Messiah, they thought, had come and, and now he's dead. It's been three days. And Jesus says, oh, foolish men. And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Drop down to verse 44. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things that are written, which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written. What was written in, the Mos- in Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets? What was written there? That the Christ would suffer. Mark this. Number one, Christ would suffer. Number two, Christ would rise again from the dead the third day. Number three, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Messiah suffers. Messiah is raised from the dead. Preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You know what that is right there? The three legs of the gospel stool. That's the the gospel. And where did Jesus go to get it? Moses. How did Moses write about Jesus Christ? Suffering, substitute, even resurrection, and proclamation of forgiveness of sins. Go to Acts 13, verse 26. Paul... He's on his first missionary journey. They're in Pisidian Antioch. Verse 26, he's in the synagogue and he says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among whom you fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they actually fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from uh, Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Now, full stop. What did they do when they fulfilled scripture? They crucified him. God raised him from the dead. And verse 32, 
we preach to you good news. Same three pieces. Right? Go to chapter 17, verse 1. Where did he do all that from? Does Paul have the whole New Testament? He didn't have any of it. Where's he going? Poor Paul. What is he going to use? He doesn't have my five favorite books that I read over and over. Don't worry. He's got Moses. He's got the law. And he's got the prophets. He's got the Psalms. 17. In Thessalonica, there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence from them, from the scriptures, uh, giving evidence that the Christ had to watch this. Suffer. Number two. Rise from the dead. And guess what number three is? And guess what actually Jesus did first? And this Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you as a Christ, or, or Paul is on this one proclaiming. So there you have it again. Suffering Messiah, rise from, raised from the dead, and proclaiming to you the gospel. Okay? Uh, go to chapter 26. Paul's giving his testimony. Verse 22. <coughs> King Agrippa is the one he's speaking to in verse 22 he says so having obtained help from God I stand to this day testifying both to small and great stating nothing um, but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place what now wait don't look at the next verse tell me the three things that are going to get mentioned just tell me Christ what he suffers what he'll rise from the dead and what proclamation okay let's watch verse 23 Moses wrote this was going to take place Messiah will suffer that by reason of the resurrection of the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people. See, there's proclamation even begun by Jesus. Okay, do you see that? Where is Paul getting all of this? From Moses in the Old Testament. Galatians 3.8 does this too. So, what has never changed? Here's what's never changed from this side of your Bible to this side. The gospel. The gospel. Suffering servant. Raised from the dead servant. Proclaim this everywhere get to the New Testament same thing there's a suffering Messiah he's raised from the dead repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins you see what's never changed in your Bible third point Paul saw his teachings united alongside the Old Testament for the church's benefit remember this 2 Timothy 3 I'm not going to take the time to go back and show you the connection that Paul was pointing Timothy first to his own writings and then he pointed him to the sacred writings which are the Old Testament and then he sums up both by saying all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching Peter is the one who says you know Paul's writings are hard to understand along with the rest of scripture Um, except he doesn't quite say it that way does he Paul's writings who are sometimes hard to understand are on the same par with all the rest of Scripture. Peter even saw his own writings, I believe, in 2 Peter 3, 1-2 uh, that are alongside the Old Testament prophets' teaching. Um, so the New Testament writers had no trouble putting their writings right in the same vein with the Old Testament writings. Some things never change from left to right. Secondly, what has changed then concerning the writings of Moses and the Christian today? This is Christ-centered discontinuity. Now I have an italicized paragraph because I I want to explain this to you. Christ-centered or Christ-exalting discontinuity is just as important a tool or servant that leads the unity, uh, reveals the unity of the Bible as Christ-centered continuity is. Guys, here's what here's what I've, I've come across. When I was doing all of my reading on this and trying to figure this whole thing out, there were men who wrote with a thinking that if if anything changes from the Old Testament to the New, well, that diminishes Jesus. 
because God can only be consistent and He can only reveal Himself in a continuous way and therefore um, the Ten Commandments still stand. In fact, all of Moses' commandments still stand. We just got to do a little something different with them. So we are under those regulations. Just They're just... They, they, they've got themselves trapped into a thinking that if anything changes in the Bible, somehow we've undone God. But this point is so helpful that if anything does change, it's to glorify Jesus. We see the following examples um, in the following examples that continuity or differences actually can reveal the unity of your Bible. The unique differences between, for example, the role of a husband and the role of a wife in a marriage actually serves to unify them, does it not? Your wife being so different from you and you being so different from your wife and actually having a different role. You lead, you love sacrificially in in your leadership and she submits and follows. That actually cements the two of you together. It doesn't pull you apart that you have different roles. In other words, the way for you two to have unity is for not both of you to be the exact same thing. Right? So, don't think your Old Testament and your New Testament have to both be the exact same thing in everything in order to show that there's unity in the Bible. God isn't even this way. The Father has a different role than the Son than from the Spirit. But guess what it shows about them? How what? Unified they are. So you don't have to have your Old Testament say everything exactly the same way your New Testament says it for the Bible to have its unity and its oneness. Don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into that trap. That the only way they can be unified is that they both have the same exact Revelation of the same stuff in the same way. So, here's what I want to show you. I want to show you how the New Testament exalts Jesus Christ by bringing some things to an end. Luke 16, number one. Jesus clearly declared that John the Baptist's ministry was a distinguishing line worth noticing. Luke 16, verse 16. Watch what he says. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, the Baptist. And since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to use a different color because I can't tell anymore. He is saying, look, something was preached up until here. And now something is being preached from here. He's drawing a distinguishing line that you need to notice. Let's build on that. That doesn't say everything. In fact, that raises some questions, doesn't it? Secondly, Jesus acted and he taught with an authority that authorized him to inaugurate a new era in law or a new regulation for people who will follow him. Go back to Luke 4. Let's walk through Luke a little bit. What we would need to see, look, if anybody came on the day in Israel and said, look, law and the prophets went up until this point and no further. What would they do with that guy? Dead. So we would expect that if anybody's going to make that kind of a claim, that there better be some kind of authority to say that, right? Well, how about this? Luke 4 in the temp- or in the synagogue in Nazareth. He opens up the scroll, the Isaiah 61, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's huge. 
That's huge. He claims to have authority. Look at verse 42 of the same chapter. When the day came, Jesus left and he went to a secluded place and the crowds were searching for him and he came to him and they tried to keep him from going away from them but he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For this I was sent. Uh, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching. So he's all about the kingdom of God. Go to chapter 7, verse 22. A report comes from John the Baptist as he is in prison. John's a weak man like you and me. And he's beginning to wonder about his cousin. Is, is he really the one that we should be looking for? And Jesus answered the, the, the sent ones from John. He said, you go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the, hear. Uh, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That's a huge statement of importance. How about chapter 8, verse 1? Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. He just keeps this message going. How about chapter 9, verse 11? The crowds were aware of this, and they followed him, welcoming him, and he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. This man looks like somebody who probably could say the law and the prophets go up until here. Chapter 11, verse 20. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I have this kind of power over demon, the demonic world, uh, something of the reign of God is right in front of you. Um, Chapter 17, verse 20. Does Jesus look like a guy who has authority to be able to say something like that? Having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and he said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look here or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He's saying there is a a nearness um, when the king is right in front of you. How about chapter 18, verse 20? Oh, get this. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Listen to what he says. This struck me this morning afresh. You know the commandments. And where is he pointing them? Mosaic law. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done all these things. And when Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack. He just pointed him to Mosaic law. And then he says, there's something that you lack. Maybe the young man was fulfilling this externally. For somebody to say, um, to point beyond Mosaic Law and say, there's still one other thing. Now, what, what, what does he say? One thing you lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Where in Mosaic Law does it say that? Where in written revelation at that time does it say that? Only somebody with authority himself could say that to somebody. Jesus, there's something climactically building here. How about chapter 20, verse 1? He finally gets to the temple, and he's standing before the temple leadership, and what did they say? On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes of the elders confronted him, and they spoke to him, Tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Who is the one who gave you this authority? Is there any doubt in anybody's mind that Jesus Christ has authority? How are you learning that Jesus has authority? It is through the eyes of his enemies. We're going to look at this tomorrow. We are told that he has authority because his enemies knew he had authority. If anybody could say, 
there's going to come a change. It would have to be somebody with authority, and that is Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus called his hearers to be specifically regulated by him. Do you remember this, Matthew 11? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, not Moses' yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Somebody with authority would need to be able to say something like that. And I will give rest to your souls. For I am gentle and humble of heart. He called his hearers to be specifically regulated by him. Jesus displayed authority over Sabbath regulation. Go to Matthew 12. I want you to see this. This is amazing. Matthew 12. Right after saying Matthew 11.28. By the way, rest for your souls. Do you know where that idea comes from? Jeremiah 6. For a man to say to a Jew, for one Jew to say to another Jew, rest for your soul. That word rest was a very important word. It was tied to the whole idea of Sabbath, right? Isn't it interesting that on the very next section of Scripture, Matthew wants to talk about what? The Sabbath. And you know the whole story. His disciples were hungry. They're picking the heads of grain of wheat and they're taking them out and they're eating them. Your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are concerned about breaking the law. Look at verse 6. What does Jesus say? Something greater than the what? Where did we get the temple? How do we know that there should be a temple? Who did it come through? Moses. What is Jesus saying? Let me back up. What could be greater in a Jew's mind than the temple? The one who ordained it. What is Jesus saying? Look at verse 8. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus displayed authority over Sabbath regulation in Mosaic Law. Right there. He is revealing that He is God. How central was the Sabbath to Israel? It was key. In fact, one of the reasons he booted out of land is because they wouldn't give the land what? While they were in it. They didn't give them any rest. Why were they in the why were they in Babylon for seventy years? Why seventy? Counted up and it was equated with how many decades or years or centuries, whatever that they hadn't been giving the land rest. Jesus, next point, authority reached even beyond Mosaic Law. Go to Mark seven. Something's changing, guys, in the New Testament. Mark 7. You know, this is the whole um, story and and account of um, uh, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They're concerned about about washing their hands and observing the traditions of the elders. They don't even go to the marketplace unless they can cleanse themselves, etc., in verse 3 and 4. And then this, this little throwaway sentence that I just lost. Oh, verse 19. I'll back up to verse 17. When he left the crowd and they entered the house, the disciples questioned him about the parable. Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it goes into his heart. It does not go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods, what? Clean. 
Did Moses declare all foods clean? But Jesus did. You know why he could do that? Because something greater than the temple is here. And if it brings glory to Jesus Christ to declare all foods clean, then you let all foods be clean. You let the temple and its regulations go away. For Messiah's sake. You let them. How about this? Matthew 17, up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. He led him up to the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses, Elijah were there with him. Peter said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now look, that was as high a thought of a, of a man that Peter could have had. You are on par with Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets. You, you, are, you are on par with them. I'm going I'm to treat you as an equal with them. What did God think of that high thought of Jesus? What did God think of that? While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You listen to who? Moses and Elijah? He's not undoing Moses and Elijah in all ways, but he's putting the emphasis where? On Jesus. You listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down on the face, uh, fell face down to the ground, and they were terrified. Jesus came up to them, touched them, and lifting their eyes, they saw no one but whom? Jesus. God eclipsed Moses and Elijah, the great representatives of the law and the prophets, with his own son and his teaching. Guys, some things are changing, big time. Jesus' authority in the Sermon on the Mount reaches beyond the authority of Mosaic law. We don't have time to, to, to show you all this, but go back to Matthew 5. If you have questions about this section and want to talk afterwards, I'll be more than happy to talk with you. Starting in verse 21, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Who said that? Where do you find that? Is it the Pharisees who said that? Well, they might have, but they were only repeating where they got it from. Where did they get it from? Moses. So you've heard that Moses said, you've heard that the ancients said, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Where does it say that in Mosaic Law? Where does it say that in Mosaic Law? It doesn't say that in Mosaic Law. Now that is not to say that God in the Old Testament was not concerned with anger in the heart. Of course he was. But it wasn't revealed like this in the Old Testament. And he does this over and over. You have heard that it was said, verse 27. Verse 31, it was said. Verse 33, again, you have heard that the ancients were told. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said. Over and over throughout all of this, Jesus is teaching like something greater than the temple has come. He's teaching like one who, whom God would he, he would, he would overshadow Moses and Elijah. So he could speak. So his disciples could listen to him. Go to the end of chapter 7. Go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus, verse 28, finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? I'll tell you why. Who else came into any synagogue or sat on any hill anywhere and said, Moses says this, but I say this. Who said that? Nobody. 
Because anybody who did do that got buried under a pile of rocks. Because he was teaching them as one having authority. The scribes never did such a thing. They wouldn't think to do such a thing. And it was right for them to never think to do such a thing. But one has come who drew a definitive line with John and said, All of this went up to here, and now everything's changing. And so then what would you expect Jesus to tell his disciples? Go to Matthew 28. Watch this. Verse 16 of Matthew 28. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, Guess what? Guess what, guys? I have authority. No brainer on that one, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Is that more authority than Moses had? It is. So as a result of that, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's what I want you to teach them. Teach them to observe all that what? I command. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus authoritatively advanced his commands into the nation through his great commission. Now I got a question for you. If you set why was Mosaic Law given? God takes this rebel rouser crowd out of Egypt. They still have Abraham's idols from Ur of the Chaldeans. They still have them. And they come out with all of them. They make a golden calf. And he brings them out and he, why does he give them Mosaic Law? Not so that they could try to save themselves. He had already graciously redeemed them as a nation. And now he gives them Mosaic Law saying, Be holy. These regulations from me that I'm giving you through Moses are for you to be holy in my presence. If you took away from Israel at any point before this line right here, if you took away that, you were taking away the holiness of the nation. And this is what the priests and the the leaders of Israel were condemned for by God because they were teaching not Moses. They were teaching other stuff. They weren't teaching it at all. And Israel was an unholy nation. If you're going to set aside regulations that were intended to make people holy, that can be kind of scary for a minute. Because if you're taking away the regulations that make people holy, then what's the result? They're going to be unholy people. Unless God gives better regulations through one who is even greater than the temple. And if he has commands for them that he wants his disciples to teach other disciples to observe, then guess what? They'll be what? Holy. Does God ever leave his people without regulation by which to be made holy in sanctification? Does he ever leave them without? The God of holiness? Never. What did the poor people do before Mosaic Law? They didn't have Mosaic Law. How could they be holy? God had it all worked out. Guess what? What happens if Mosaic Law goes away? Don't worry. He's got it figured out in his son. Some things never change from the Old Testament to the New. One is the gospel. And this is why I say, this has come to a climax. It's been reached. That that never changes. It was preached. You can preach the gospel from the Old Testament. You can preach it in even more fullness in the New Testament. But there are some things that had to change. 
how God regulates his people. If you look at a, the chart next on the next page, that is um, a way that you can specifically think about how to study Mosaic Law. I came up with that when we went through um, Leviticus. Let me just point a couple things out. I'm not going to walk through the whole thing. The reason that it's in a stair-step fashion is because I want to visually represent the climax that comes in Jesus, that you're starting over here with Mosaic Law, and it's important and it's good, but it's not as big as Jesus, and it all needs to end, and it all needs to move towards Jesus. If you look at the bottom of it, from left to right, what is on the bottom left in, in kind of black down there? Mosaic Law, and then it kind of fades and, and turns to what? To the right. The law of Christ. You see, God never leaves his people without regulation. But the regulations change. He declared all foods clean. Okay? All right, let's take a break. And then we'll come back and we'll spend one last little bit of time together in number five. Okay? Take a break, guys. We'll be back in a moment. I'll call you back. I'm going to attempt to do something in four minutes. We'll see. Um, I want to I direct you back to Matthew 5 for a moment. And I want to take you before verse 21. Because I made it easy on you and I made it easy on me by directing you to Ma- verse 21 first. When it appears like everything in verse 17 to verse 20 contradicts everything I just said. And I'm going to try to show you that I don't think that's what Jesus was saying at all. Remember in verse 21 we said that Jesus is saying, You have heard this, but you have heard that. But I say to you, He's placing Himself above even Mosaic Law. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Full stop. Just a moment. To fulfill... I think the best way to understand the word fulfill is to think of the idea of drawing it out. To almost think of a relay race. Mosaic law was given a baton by God. And it was to run its portion of the redemptive race that God was carrying out. And like anybody who runs a leg of a relay, you don't run the whole race. Okay? Mosaic law was to run its portion... And if you ever ran on a relay back in your glory days, you know that when you saw the guy coming, you marked your point, and you took off running before he actually got there. If he ran into you with it, that was a major problem. You wanted to try to run and go, and you're trying to draw that runner out through his last step before you get to the error line. And then that's when you want to take the baton and the relay runner fulfilled was drawn out to the very end. He couldn't take another step. doesn't matter how much further he runs. It doesn't count. He has fulfilled his part of the race. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to stop Mosaic Law. I came to not abolish it, but to draw it out. So that it gets to say everything it was supposed to say, that it was intended by God to say, and it runs its course. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it all is accomplished. That, I think, right there could encompass many of the gospel realities that are in the law. Heaven and earth won't pass away until 
what is revealed in the law has all of its fulfillment finally. Okay? Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's a couple things going on here. First, I hope that you don't hear in me as I make it clear that I believe Mosaic Law has come to an end that I am not belittling Mosaic Law. I am not trying to belittle Mosaic Law. I never want to because I think that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 19, the first part. If you annul them and, and, and teach them to others, uh, teach that to others, you're, you're going to uh, be in a lot of trouble. Mosaic Law even today stands in a way that is helpful for you and me as a Christian, not to regulate us, but to still point to Jesus. It still points to Messiah who has come. And so I would have no trouble today teaching from Leviticus 19 like we did. And walk through verse by verse through the whole chapter and say, here's what this command to Israel was and here's what it looked like and here's what they were supposed to do and here's what they weren't supposed to do. And even though Mosaic Law is not over us today, and by the way, I don't even think it's over Israel today. How can it be when the temple is gone in all of its fullness? Um, I can still use Mosaic Law to point to Jesus. Verse 20, or I'm sorry, let's look at half, uh, the last part of verse 19. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When did Jesus write that? <coughs> Jesus was born under the law. Was he not? Is he bound to Mosaic Law at that point? Yes and no. Because what do we find in his life? What is he doing? What are you going to watch him do through the Gospels? He is going to be under Mosaic Law and he is going to go beyond Mosaic Law. And the only person who could be under Mosaic Law and beyond it at the same time is who? God. Jesus. And so, Mosaic Law should never be abolished in the sense of, hey, don't even read it anymore. There are some Christians who basically have that attitude. I don't want you to hear that from me. That is not what I'm trying to communicate. It stands, it's very important, and it points to Jesus Christ. In no way are you under it. Because something greater than the temple has come. Something greater than Solomon has come. Something greater than Jonah has come. The Lord of the Sabbath is here. Um, So, you see elements of Mosaic Law that can still have points of instruction. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy 3? All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. How Mosaic Law is profitable for you today is everything. How you think it is. If you take it as, let me give you a classic example. Uh, Israel was commanded to not have a par- or to make sure they had a parapet around the, the roof of their house, a little fence, so that people didn't fall off the edge. If you think today that that's profitable for you, by I'll give you an example of what I've heard um, before. Uh, therefore, on your property, you need to make sure that you have if if you have like uneven sidewalk, 
you need to like smooth it out where there's anything because you, your neighbor can trip. And so that is how Mosaic Law is profitable for you today. You know what that is? That's an application of Mosaic Law to a Christian. And I don't even want to do that. I want to instead look for what is God... It's come to an end. But what does it reveal about who God is? And is there something theologically God's concerned about love for a neighbor? Okay, does the New Testament say anything about that? Oh, yes, it does. Jesus had much to say about love for a neighbor. So did Paul. Now, let's go to our regulations and pull it out. And let's show how it's God hasn't changed. The God who's concerned that you love your neighbor has never changed. But he regulated them one way, and he's regulating us another way. So I don't mind starting with Mosaic Law and it'll, and I don't mind letting it stand and say what it says, but I'm going to run to the New Testament and I'm going to show what Jesus said. Now, Jacob, what would you add? Anything that you would add to that to help round it out? What did I miss that you were thinking about? All right, let's let's. Um, if you have more questions, you want to talk about that. That is, look. That's a that's a lifetime of studying and, and, and going after Jeff. I, there's, I don't know. This, I just want to throw this out there. But what I'm puzzled by is why is there the progression? Why what? Why is there a progression from you know the way it used to be and the way it is now? That's what I you know. Why did God reveal it in a progression? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the, the the answer that comes to my mind first is that for whatever reason it glorifies God just to do it that way. I might not think to do that, but how much more does this book stand out as something that wasn't my idea or yours or any man's idea, but it's God's? Who would have done it this way? God is so counterintuitive to our fallen minds, and this pleases Him to do it this way. Go figure. All right, number five. For your practice, I gave you a list of uh, subjects here that you could progressively isolate one verse at a time, or one text at a time. And then you can, as you study what it means, one passage at a time, you can ask how it will impact your understanding of the one message. So God has some rebar themes that run the course of the Old Testament through the New. And they're in the form of subjects like a promised seed. And uh, Smed did this, remember? In Genesis, the promised seed, the offspring of the woman, uh, and the offspring of the devil. And at at one point in in his message in Genesis 3, he actually traced through the rebar of Scripture and went from left to right. And it shows the unity of the Bible. And it helps you to come up, oh my goodness, who is Jesus in regards to that? That's amazing. Sacrifice. We talked about this. The sacrifice of a substitute. Trace that from Genesis 2, 3, to um, all the way through to the end. You're in the standing, and, 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 and there's a, you see a lamb standing as if slain. Sacrifice. There's, there's sacrifice from the beginning to the end. An innocent substitute. Blood. Sacrificial lamb. A priest. The high priest. A tabernacle, a tent, a temple. The temple came to tabernacle among us. Tear down this temple, in three days I'll build it back. But he was referring to his body. So the temple in the body came to tabernacle among us as a, like a tent that wanders. And, and heaven 
is the New Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven is in the same configuration of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple. I mean, trace that from left to right. Here's the one that I want to trace with you. And I'm going to do it quickly. We're not going to turn to very many passages. So if you want to write the passages down, if you don't have them in your... I, in fact, what I want to do is look and see. I'll just follow up from here because I've got an extra. Um, yeah, you've got them all there. This is good. All right, here we go. Um, Genesis 2. That is where God um, says that He rests in Genesis 2, 1 to 3 on the seventh day. In Genesis 2, 1 to 3, way back here in the very beginning pages of your Bible, it does not say anywhere in Genesis 2, 1 to 3 that, and therefore you shall rest also. (coughs) I command you to rest. It just says, God rested. You can go back and listen to that sermon that I did in that series in Genesis on that if you want. The burden of that whole passage is about what God did. It is not about what man should do in response to God. Can I give you an example of how even within the Old Testament you can take a later revelation and push it back into it? Do you know what many of our brothers in Christ want to do? Because here, Moses reveals the Sabbath day. Guess what they want to do back here when it says that God rests? They want to take that command to rest on the Sabbath day and push it back into Genesis 2. There's just one problem. It's not there. Be patient. Be patient. Let Genesis 2 say what it says. Just let it say what it says. Don't worry, we're going to keep moving through. Do you understand that? That's reading from right to left. That's interpreting right to left when you take the the, the, the command to rest on the Sabbath day and push it back into Genesis 2. That's reading Exodus back into Genesis. Don't even do that. All right, so then from the fall to Mount Sinai. In Genesis 2, it appears that the Creator's work was entered into by Adam. He was put to work into the garden. But the Creator's rest that was mentioned in 2, 1 to 3 was impossible for Adam to enter after the fall because God did what with the ground? He cursed it. So God was basking in His blessing on day 7 and it appears that man has missed that blessed rest that the Creator knew Himself and that He experienced. And you know what? I think, I think man even knew that he missed it. And I think man even knew that he was supposed to get it, but he would never, or at least they were hoping for it. Genesis 5, verse 29. This is what, was, this is what Noah's dad said when Noah was born. Genesis 5, 29. He called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us what? rest. From our work and from the toil of our hands arriving from the ground, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Listen, did they know that they weren't in the Creator's rest? They knew it. And they had some kind of an anticipation that they should be in it. And they were looking for one who would be born, who would what? Give it to them. Do you hear that? They're looking for a seed. They're looking for an offspring who's going to get them into the Creator's rest that they blew and can't get to themselves. Now just hold that. That's not, at this point, revealed in Genesis 5. Jesus, not yet. Be patient, right? The most that the biblical data reveals from the fall all the way to Mount Sinai. Okay, so from Genesis 2 all the way to Exodus, the most that is revealed uh, about anything Sabbath-wise is that there are seven days recognized in the week. Did you notice that? If God intended from Genesis 2 on 
to command man to observe the Sabbath, it is empty of regulation from Genesis 2 all the way to Exodus 16. There's nothing revealed about a Sabbath rest. Do you know what is revealed from Genesis 2 to Mosaic Law? Tithe. Abraham came and he tithed 10% to Melchizedek. That made it onto the page of Scripture. You know what else made it on the page of Scripture between Genesis 2 and, and Mosaic Law? Circumcision. Circumcise your son on the eighth day. That made it. Guess what didn't make it? The Sabbath day. It's not anywhere from Genesis 2, and it doesn't show up until Exodus 16 when manna comes. And they're instructed on the seventh day, you don't go out and get any. On the sixth day, you gather twice as much, and it won't go foul on you. Okay? And because it's not there, I mean, because it's not in Scripture, are we to presume that that means it wasn't there? Yeah, just because it's not there doesn't is not a foolproof, conclusive argument that they didn't do it. But I, what's, what's very interesting is that there is nothing anywhere of anybody shown anywhere at any time, even once, doing it. And that, I think, says a lot. But circumcision did make the pages of Scripture. Tithe did, etc. Some did, but some didn't. Okay? So... What do we see from the fall of Genesis on and through the fort is, is that um, rest is tied to the expectation of a one of a son being born who will come. You get to Mount Sinai and there is an explosion of Sabbath language and rest. Exodus reveals that the Creator became the Redeemer of Israel and that the Redeemer now has a rest to set before Israel to enter into. And the rest of the Redeemer, it, it exists at all these different levels and cycles so that Israel can see rest everywhere before them. How does it come? Every seventh day they're going to see rest in front of them, the Sabbath day. And then every seventh year they're going to see a year of rest. And then every 50th year a special year of rest before them. So one can't read from Exodus through Deuteronomy without seeing an explosion of rest language. Now then what's interesting is that the second generation of of those in the wilderness all the way to Joshua entering the promised land, um, another kind of rest is set before them. In Deuteronomy chapter 12 verses 8 to 10. In 2519, the promised land now gets tied inseparably to this idea of rest. When you get into the land and all the enemies are done and you rest and you get your inheritance and you rest, you'll rest from all of the battles. So now God starts to tie the land to rest. So let's think about this. No rest commanded from the fall. Uh, and even when God rests on the seventh day, all the way until Exodus 16, and then rest language everywhere. Sabbath day, seventh year, 50th year, and now even land. So this people coming out of the wilderness into the promised land would have been a communication of what to everybody everywhere? These people, there's like rest everywhere. Look, for a whole year, they weren't doing anything. And God was taking care of them. They're in the, so rest was communicated everywhere. In Psalm 95, King David is, um, the writer of Hebrews attributes that psalm to David. And David says in Psalm 95 that God was angry with the continual hardness of heart that Israel had and the rebellion of that first generation of Israelites in the wilderness. So it says that God swore in his anger in, 
in verse 11, truly they shall not enter into my rest. Verse 11 of Psalm 95. David picks up these words that God spoke, and by the way, it's not an exact quotation in Psalm 95, it's not an exact quotation from Numbers 14 or from Deuteronomy 1, but he picked up those words to challenge the Israelites, guess what, guess what, of his day. He spoke those old words to people in his day. He spoke it to people in his day, saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your what? Heart. So David picks up an Old Testament idea for those who are in the wilderness, and he's applying it to the people in his day. He's exhorting his contemporaries to hear God's voice and the current call to rest. Oh, wait a minute, just full stop. What on earth is David doing in David's generation telling his people um, to enter into God's rest if in the wilderness they got an explosion of rests? Don't they already have a high dose of rest? I mean, under David, everybody's been conquered. They've got the Sabbath rest. They've got the seventh year rest. They've got the year of Jubilee rest. And there are no enemies anywhere to be found because David's king. They've got the land rest. What on earth is he saying to them, you're going to miss God's rest? What does that mean? That God has in mind a rest that what? Isn't tied to these other rests that he gave them. There's another kind of rest that exists. He has a greater rest in mind beyond Sabbath rest expressed each week and every seventh year and every fiftieth year and that it gets expressed even beyond the land rest. Now, I wish I could be taking the time to turn through the pages with you, but what I want you to see what we're doing is we're going from left to right. And we're letting each passage speak for itself on its own. Right? Do you see that? Okay? Every passage gets to speak for itself above all the others. So Genesis 2 gets to say what it says, and even Exodus 16 doesn't get to creep back in and try to tell us what Genesis 2 says. And then we cover what was going on in the wilderness in Exodus and in Leviticus and whatnot. Um, And then we get to David. And we're not pushing Christ Jesus into any of these passages yet. Okay? Now, remind you of Jesus' first coming and his rest. Remember Matthew 11, 28? Who comes on the scene? And now listen to this language that a rabbi says to Jews. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You need to have your ears informed with everything from the left part of your Bible to hear that the way that it would have shocked a Jew. What? Rest from you, a man? For my soul? Not just for my body on on the Sabbath, but for my soul? And then you get to chapter 12, the, the chapter right after that in Matthew. And he comes and he says, something greater than a temple is here? Guys, what do you miss if all you do is just read Matthew and you don't read your Old Testament? What do you miss? You miss everything. You miss the way that it informs Matthew and informs what you understand what Jesus is doing. So that weekly rest is now being shown by Jesus to be all, full of all kinds of limitations. And that weekly Sabbath rest was, was not the ultimate expression of rest that God had in mind. His Son is the ultimate expression of that rest. Come to me and I'll give you rest, he says. Go to Colossians 2. We'll look at this one. 
All we need to talk about is death. The death of the Son. Colossians 2. The effect of His death on believers in Jesus Christ. Verse 13 of Colossians 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, I'm sorry, uh, He made you alive together with Him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, watch this, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Nobody's to act as your judge in regards to the Sabbath day. What, what are these things, Paul? Things which are a shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to whom? Christ. After detailing the life-transforming work of the cross in the life of the believers... Um, Paul makes it very clear that the Sabbath day regulation is done. Nobody, guys, listen, nobody wants the shadow of the man when you can have the man. That's what Mosaic Law was. That's what Sabbath was. It was the shadow of a towering man who has come. Now, what happens then when a Christian says, no, 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 no. Still have to obey the Sabbath. Do you realize what's being said about Jesus? Guys, it is an affront I would even offer that if you want to hold on to Mosaic Law, when the man who cast that shadow has come, do you see what you're saying about Jesus? No, no, no. This regulation is higher? When Jesus says, no, he's higher? Do you understand? No one wants the shadow of the great man when you can have the great man. In Hebrews, when we were there in chapter 4 and we talked about um, uh, the word of God is living and active, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, that's in the context of entering into rest. In Hebrews 3 and 4, there's more discussion there about Um, the rest that is found in Messiah. Um, The writer of Hebrews wants to make sure, he's he's basically doing with his audience what David did with his audience in Psalm 95. He's grabbing those old words from the end, or from the, not the end, from the beginning, and he's he's applying them to to the believers in his day. What he is saying is, guys, believers in Jesus Christ, you need to be careful. You need to be sure that you're not missing the great salvation rest that is located in Jesus. So guess what? There is a perpetual challenge of sinners throughout all of redemptive history that you can miss God's rest. Even when Messiah, who is rest, has come, you can hold on to him in a form and in a way that you could actually miss him and miss his rest. There is a perpetual need to warn believers to not miss God's salvation rest that comes in Jesus. So God's ultimate rest in Hebrews 3 and 4 is not missed by missing a day. It's not missed by missing a year. It's not missed by missing the land. But it's missed by not believing and trusting Jesus. And that's the concern of the writer of Hebrews. 
Now you might think, great, we reached the cross, we reached Jesus, we've said all there is to say about rest. Except there's just one problem. If this is where Hebrews is, guess what? There's a little bit more that's been revealed. Go to Revelation chapter 6 and we'll finish with this. Revelation 6 verse 9. Of you into heaven. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar of the souls those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So these are the persecuted ones in the tribulation. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on, on those who dwell on the earth? They even sense in heaven uh, there's an injustice that was done and it's not been taken care of yet. God, how long? Lamb, how long? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should what? Rest. So they had to even get to heaven to experience this rest. So there's even a greater expression of rest that will come in the presence of the Lamb, even in heaven. Um, Look at Revelation 14, verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Listen, while you live on earth in Christ in this mixed condition, you are laboring, you are fighting against sin, and you are fighting for holiness of life. And when you die, rest. Rest from those. You don't have to fight anymore. There's a greater rest even coming. Go to Revelation 22. Verses 1 to 5. This reflects something of that very original setting in Genesis 2. There's a, there's a tree of life in Revelation 22, like there was at the beginning, and there's no curse. Um, the rest that God entered into in Genesis 2, now it appears to be entered into and enjoyed finally and ultimately by believers. Look at verses 1 to 5. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were there for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, so the curse of the ground is gone, that even Noah's parents were looking for relief from. It's gone. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, which is what you want to see more than anything else, guys, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have the need of the light of the Lamb, or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. I think that's a picture of entering into finally the rest, not of the Creator merely, but of the Redeemer. The Creator's rest and the Redeemer's rest come together in heaven and we get to experience it. No more curse. We can rest. Now, here's my question. When you work from left to right, that was, guys, that was quick. Take much more time to trace through these subjects. But when you do that and you let each passage stand on its own and it says what it says on its own and speaks for itself, you then find it informing what you think about this one message, right? Did we have to put Jesus in Genesis 2 to get the main point of Jesus, to have a better impression of who Jesus is? Did we have to do that? No. Genesis 2 didn't say anything about Jesus specifically. Oh, but wait a minute. Yeah, it did. When you put it together with all the other ones, it it made Jesus 
Messiah of Nazareth be seen to be the great, amazing God who offers rest, that He is, right? You see, the one message of the Bible is Jesus Christ. But how you get to Him from every single passage in it is everything. It's everything. The early church fathers believed that they had to get to Jesus and so they had their little techniques or little allegories that they did to get there. Anytime you saw wood in the Old Testament, guess what? It was the cross. Anytime you saw something red, guess what? Is the blood of Jesus. So Rahab hangs her little red cord out the window. And the way that we know that that has to do with Jesus is because it's red, it's blood. It's a picture of the blood of Jesus to come. They did this. Now what's good about that? They want to get to Jesus. But how you do it is everything. Let one text speak for itself from left to right. Okay? Guys, that is a whole, whole bunch for you. And I'm sorry that we didn't get to do small groups the last couple times. Um, but I just, I want you to have this so that if you move on and you go to H3, or even if you don't, you, you need to have this sense of how to handle Scripture from left to right. Okay? And it takes a lifetime to develop this skill. Um, and again, where did we start? You want an interpretation method that doesn't cloud God's meaning but reveals it in all of its fullness so that you can see the Savior that you love. Right? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do confess to you joyfully that we love your Son, Jesus. Thank you so much for revealing Him in the unique way that you did in the Bible. We would have never thought to do it that way. How counterintuitive you indeed are. We love you for the way that you did it. It takes labor. It makes us have to work in your Bible. God, what a, what a brilliant plan that was. To get us to be in your Bible and to work through it progressively. God, what a brilliant idea. I thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it nourishes our souls. I pray, Lord, that you would bless these men today as they go on their way into whatever it is that you've called them to be and do the rest of the day. Lord, may Jesus be on their minds often. And any deviation from devotion to you or from purity of heart before you, Lord, I pray that they would confess it quickly and return to you. Lord, we need your help. We are weak men like that. And we need your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.